0: I allowed myself to let go of what I knew and what I felt like he should be, and now when I think about him, I always, I, I think of him as he was in the 80s. So I miss my 1980s dad, and I have fond memories of what he was towards the end and all the way along, but when I think about him fondly, I think of 1980s
1: dad. Welcome to Age Old Questions, the Aging Parents podcast, where we talk about navigating the role of supporting aging parents. My name is Ellen Koble, and this episode is special to me because it's brought to you today by my wonderful sisters-in-law. S- sisters-in-law? Sister-in-laws? Sisters-in-law. Yeah. Today, I'm talking to my sister-in-law and friend, Jen George. She talks with me about the process of moving her parents from New York to Chicago to be closer to her, and about how, as her dad declined physically and cognitively, her mom was still resistant to letting anyone else care for him, even when it became a challenge. Jen talks about what she learned, some of the things she struggled with, and what she's thankful for. Also, All the music you'll hear in this episode is written and recorded by my other sister-in-law, Kristen Gordon. I'll leave links in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about Kristen and her music. I'm so thankful to have both of these amazing women in my life. Jen, thank you for sharing your story. And here's our chat. Well, hi, Jen. So nice to be talking with you and seeing you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I was hoping that we could just talk a little bit today and you could share the story of supporting your parents, especially your dad. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe I'll just start by letting you kind of introduce yourself a little bit, introduce your family and um, how how caring for your parents kind of got started.
0: Sure. Um, So I'm Jen George and live in Chicago with my husband, Dan, your brother, and uh, three kids, uh, two 14 year olds and an 11 year old. And my parents, so I am the youngest of four. I have a brother who's 15 years older than I am, a sister who's 13 years older than I am, and then a foster brother who's 12 years older than I am. So we have a huge age difference and i the story the family story is that I was chosen um it was a family vote to have another child so late in life. Um, <laughs> so it was really important that I always knew that I was wanted um and so who I always joked around that they you know they had me to take care of them, but um that was never the case and actually, I think in retrospect, there's a lot of truth to that, but about. I guess it was eight years ago now, my parents lived in New York and lived in the house that they had built. My father was an architect and he had built uh, over 40 years ago, or by then it was, now it's almost 50 years. And my dad suffered from, has dementia. Um, He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder And in his 60s, so late in life, which was challenging. And then he was diagnosed with Parkinson, Parkinsonism disease, which is slightly Mm -hmm. different than Parkinson's, as you know, Um, in his, I guess it was his 70s. So also, once again, a late diagnosis. Um, And it was just really first tremors that he was having. So we were dealing with Um, A couple of things going on. The dementia kicked in later in life, um, probably really when he was in his late 70s. But who's to know what it it could be a combination of all those things. So there was a lot of things happening with my dad. And my mom was working full time and taking care of the house and doing everything um, and trying to care for my dad. And I finally said, you know, all of us, my siblings, we Said, you know, now's the time to start thinking about moving. And we'd rather it be your choice than be in a situation where we have to make some tough decisions. So they looked at what it would be like to live near each of us Uh, my brother Alex, who was in Israel at the time, my sister in New Jersey, my brother, my other brother in New York, and myself in Chicago. And it just ended up making the most sense for them to come out to Chicago. one I had started looking before I even started talking to them about what that might look like, whether it was, do we get, do we, do my, does my husband and I and our kids move into a larger home so that we, they could come live with us. Mm -hmm. Do they find an apartment? Do we look at an independent living facility? Um, they didn't want to, um, you know, my mom, my mom saw herself as being young. She was still working. And really didn't want to start moving and uprooting their lives. They had a really active community that they were part of. Um, So that took some time. That took a lot of time of talking and having conversations. And honestly, I don't know what the impetus was. But finally, I just started going places. I started going to independent living facilities and doing some of the research on my own. um, Because I felt like... That was never going to happen and mm-hmm. they really wanted to stay in their home and they really wanted to take care of one another and and do all of that. So long story short, my mom finally agreed that it would be a good idea with my father getting older and they were able to sell their home and move to Chicago Um, to what's called Brookdale. It was Holly Court at the time, and it's now part of a big conglomerate. And it worked out really nicely. And one of the reasons they chose that location, um, or that I really pushed that location, was it's centralized in our town, which is Oak Park, which is about 15 minutes from Chicago. We're right on the border of Chicago, so we're the first suburb. The building itself is walking distance to the downtown. It's next to a Trader Joe's and the library and all of these things that they could still get to. And um, they're very active in their synagogue. And there was a synagogue that we belong to that was um, very close by. So there was an understanding of, yes, now is the time to move um, so that they could start to have their own lives while being there. And my mom's still driving. And she could mm-hmm. get a lay of the land so that it made some sense. And it worked out well for my father, too, because when they first moved, he was able to walk and do a lot of things and he really kind of made it his own place. Um, it was really difficult, though.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, my siblings were thrilled to have my parents close to a sibling. They also There was also a big push because I had the youngest children, so they could spend time with them and get to know them, and my kids could at least get to know their grandparents. My siblings all have children, but they were all out of the house at the mm-hmm. time or graduating high school. So, once again, it was another reason why it made sense for them to come out this way or come to Chicago. Um, the move was challenging. Mm-hmm. Um it was challenging to leave their house.
1: Ah, <laughs> uh-huh. so as they were doing that move, what sort of <laughs> kind of cognitive and functional level was your dad at?
0: Um, so he was very cognitive at the time. He was mm-hmm. he was very functional. He he was actually in in very good shape. Um, he was able to help with the move. He was still mm-hmm. driving at the time. So when they first moved here, he still drove. Um, and he was able to help with the move in some ways. He was very much in, in terms of his whole lifespan, it was, he wasn't able to do as much of the packing, but he knew that they were moving. He knew where they were going. He was able to help visualize where furniture was going to go into the new apartment, which was really important. And really understanding that he was in a new place and getting a lay of the land. So he also would go for walks and really get a sense of where they were living.
1: Yeah. So. And I bet that that helped a lot as he progressed, that he was familiar with with where he was.
0: Absolutely. And we talked about that. We had had conversations, my mom and I, and even my dad and I, of moving somewhere before it became a foreign space. Mm-hmm. And being able to move and have an understanding exactly what you're saying so that it wasn't a new place on top of having cognitive issues Mm
1: -hmm. which
0: we knew were going to be coming
1: because he already had the diagnosis yeah yeah so then how yeah how did your parents settle in in the the beginning and um, i remember walking by when we came and visited Mm you we went on a walk and just And we, I think, just went to get ice cream, but Mm -hmm. then walked by on the same walk to be like, oh, let's just stop in and say hi, and then Mm -hmm. continued on. And that, I mean, just seemed like a really convenient setup.
0: Yeah, so the location is seven minutes from where I live, like a walking distance, and Um, right on the train line as well so they like that was another thing like oh you guys can get on the train and when they first moved my dad was absolutely capable of getting on a train and going into the city although he never really did on his own Um, but he could and he would talk about it quite a bit or sometimes he took the train I think maybe once he took the train from where he lived which was three stops away to our place Mm -hmm. um, which was good they, it was, it took some time for them to get settled. Uh, my mom retired at 73 and then moved the next day to Chicago, uh-huh. um, which was really hard. And I think the move was the hardest for her. Um, she didn't see herself as old. Mm-hmm. Um, so here she is in this. Facility. I mean, it's an apartment building and they'd never lived in an apartment before, or not since they were like just first married. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: a lot of the people there um, had a lot of cognitive issues and there were a lot of wheelchairs and walkers, and neither one of my parents needed any assistance to do anything. And so, but they made their apartment their own. Um, It took them quite a while. It really took about It took a good nine months to a year for them to settle in and realize that this was a good move for them
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and switching doctors and -hmm. doing all those things. Once again, we lived near a city and it was, they were able to connect with a lot of really good doctors. So it wasn't as difficult as I think they thought it was going to be um, to, I mean, that's another piece to when you're moving parents to think about all of their healthcare needs. And how are they going to continue to have the same support and having doctors that talk to each other? That was that was a big piece for me is that I wanted them to have a primary care physician that was well-connected
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, so that they were kind of just picking up from where they were.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, probably that move had a lot to do with kind of changing the way that they defined themselves and that that. I think it's just a really hard, um, family dynamic, of Mm -hmm. trying to, you know, and even maybe kind of making sure everybody knows who's still in charge. Mm (laughs) Um, yeah, I just, I imagine even for myself, like, Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm ever going to feel ready to take a next step. I don't know. It's just as a, it's a challenge. Yeah. And
0: also that that their youngest was doing this, so I think I, I think I got blamed for a lot of things, um, not on purpose, but in conversation I would hear, "Oh, our daughter made us move here. Mm-hmm. Um, the grandkids were a scapegoat of, oh, well, we had to come so that we could be near the grandkids and help them, which was lovely for them to think." Uh-huh. Um, but not the reality. So, I mean, there's always going to be a decline when you shift somebody from where they know to somewhere new because of that, right? There's uh-huh. an uncomfortableness. We don't we don't change well when we get older.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think
0: we feel that now anyways. Yeah. Um, and so there's a timidness. And I remember my dad moved three weeks before my mom did. And so we got him set up in the apartment. And he had gone up to get Abby who was a baby at the time like a she must have been she must have been like 2 years old and i had said dad don't like you can go up she'd woken up from a nap but i'll come up and get her and the next thing i heard was thump 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 down the stairs mm-hmm. and he thought he could get her up out of bed and bring her down the stairs and he thankfully he landed And she was okay and he had elderly skin that just pulled off Mm, and it was so scary for everybody involved. And I'm thinking, great, I'm the one watching him. My mom's not here. (laughs) Uh Um, And getting him, you know, patched up and taken care of and all those pieces. And I think that that was really one of the, there had been things that had happened before they moved that were definitely signs that he was aging um, and starting to lose some of his abilities, his gross motor skills. Um, But that was, that was really, and I think that stayed with him forever. Mm-hmm. That fear of that he could have really hurt her and mm-hmm. that he could have really hurt himself as well.
1: Yeah.
0: And so there was, there was definitely from the move this timidness that, that started to um, to come out. Mm-hmm. And this fear that I had never seen in my parents before because they were both really strong people. Um, you know, that feeling of not knowing where you're going. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think for my dad was both being in a new space and cognitively mm-hmm. of, you know, that fear of getting lost, but also that being so determined and, you know, I'm fine. There was a lot of, there was a lot of, I'm fine. I can do it from both of them.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then at what point did your dad start to need more care and was not as functionally independent? So I'd say his, his tremors
0: continued to get worse. Um, which was really difficult, especially for someone who's an architect who is used to always using his hands. Um, My dad never had any hobbies. So finding things for him to do and keep himself active was very difficult. He definitely uh, became very depressed and there was a lot of isolation and my mom had a really hard time motivating him. he was supposed to do physical therapy. He didn't want to do physical therapy. Um, A lot of resistance, and it started to come out a lot in anger towards my mom. So she really felt the brunt of his decline, um, which I think at first was a lot more mental than physical. Then there was, I think there was challenges with him being able to remember to take his medication. So that's Mm -hmm. where we would see it. The physical, him having help, needing help, physical help, really for a long period of time ended up being around using the restroom. Mm -hmm. He could dress himself. He could shower himself, feed everything. Um, He just had a lot of um, incontinence, became an issue, which was from, we think, from the Parkinson's. And so that required a lot of assistance. And my mom is very stubborn and wouldn't let anybody help.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so she bore the brunt of it. And it really limited their ability to go out and do things Mm -hmm. um, because he always needed to be near a bathroom. And that that really, I think, determined their quality of life.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: their ability to do things was that, that sole issue.
1: Yeah. Cause you can't go, I mean, you just can't go, yeah. go far away. You're kind of tethered. Mm-hmm. You're tethered to the,
0: to being close to the bathroom. And that was like, even just coming to our, our house um, and just always being ready for that. Um, then his next, the next phase was mobility was the the shuffling that started. Once again, that was problematic. I mean, it's problematic because it's the slowness mm-hmm. and he was resistant and would not do physical therapy or he would do physical therapy for a couple of weeks and then not want to do the exercises. Mm-hmm. And that's where we started seeing like the small child. That's how I had to understand it was, and here I was having... At this point, my kids were toddlers in early elementary school. And so I was finding that the way that I interacted with my own children was very similar to the way that I needed to interact with my father. That's where the cognitive, like what day of the week it was, or reminding him that there were things that needed to get done, or what was happening, was the same thing as my children. And my Mm -hmm. mom had no patience for it because to her, it was her husband. It was this man that she'd always been with who is asking the same thing over and over and over again.
1: I think that can be, at least in my own experience, it took a while of being married to realize like, okay, he doesn't. Reflect everything on me, (laughs) or like I would just be embarrassed if he Mm -hmm. said something that I was like, I don't think I agree with that. And now my friends are going to think that I think that because he, you know. So I think you know, as a couple, it's hard kind of separate that. Mm -hmm. I think it is a real challenge to see a partner decline and not feel like that's reflecting back on you. So you kind of hide it. You know, instead of being accepting of it, it's more like stop acting like that. (laughs) Right. um
0: (laughs) And you bring up a really good point because where they live, they have dinner as part of I was about to say part of the tuition. It's part, it's part of the the living situations. They have this beautiful dining room. And that became a real stressor for my mom was she was embarrassed or she didn't want people to think mm-hmm. less of him. Here he was, this very brilliant mm-hmm. man who no longer could ver- verbalize that or would tell stories that weren't quite steeped in reality or they were in his, another place. And... I'd remind her that we all know that he has dementia. And here she was mm-hmm. in a location where there were many people who were at different, different stages of life, yet she could not shake that. And so she spent a lot of time covering up for him or answering mm-hmm. questions or getting frustrated and embarrassed, which then he would also get frustrated because he knew things weren't, you know, every- it was a lot of tense, a lot of tension. Um, Mm -hmm. tension between my mom and my dad. And then I would get frustrated and upset because she'd be, you know, Norman, you need to stop doing that or you need to, you know, remember. That's not true. That's not true. That's not really the story. And Mm
1: -hmm. as not being in that
0: relationship, you can be forgiving of it and not living in that all the time. And that's something that I had to learn. Yeah was patience with my mom, because that was her reality
1: 24-7. Mm-hmm. I had a patient that I'll just always remember of someone who I thought was just like the most patient person that I've ever met, where her husband had some pretty advanced Alzheimer's. But he, just about every two minutes, he had done work in China somewhere. I don't remember where. Um and they had some artwork up. So I think this might have been what always reminded him. But he would say, Hun, did I ever take you to China? And she'd say, Yeah, you did. We had a great vacation. Every two minutes. You know, and I'm just, you know, I'm there for a 45 minute visit. But just the way that she said every two minutes, oh yeah, we did. It was it was great. Mm-hmm. Like without I don't just yeah. being so patient. And to him it was a new question mm-hmm. every time. And, you know, she never said I already told you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Stop asking. Um, I just, it's a different kind of patience that it takes to approach every two minutes. Right. (laughs) And a
0: different understanding of where you're at um, and, Mm -hmm. and recognition of it. I had to learn that there's the caregiver mentality and you have to start to compartmentalize your relationship with your parents. Like I had to, There were times where I would go and I'd say, okay, I'm the daughter. And then there were many times where I had to kind of change my hat as I walked in the door and said, okay, I'm in caregiver mode. And whatever needs Mm -hmm. to get done will get Mm -hmm. done. And I will be in the reality that faces me and all of those pieces. It took a really long time um, of my mom just taking care of him. She lost the ability to go out and to do anything without him. She, It became very difficult for her to leave him alone. Not so much for his own safety, but he would get scared and paranoid. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it became mm-hmm. a safety issue of he, he needed her to go to the restroom or he was shuffling more and it was hard for him to move. Um, so that was very difficult to we we saw i saw all of it and i fed my siblings information
1: i Mm -hmm. think that was the
0: biggest challenge for me was being the only one who was seeing it on a daily basis because my siblings would be like no they're fine they get on the phone and they have these great conversations with us and everything's fine (laughs) and and so i never knew there was a long period of time where i thought it was just me And I was exaggerating everything. Mm -hmm. and I was making things worse Mm -hmm. than they really were. But um, in retrospect, I think it was just the fact that I was seeing it every day. And my siblings didn't want to see that their parents were aging. Mm -hmm. Um, But it came to a point where my mom needed help. Otherwise, she was never going to... This whole idea of them being there for the grandkids, it, it was becoming... One, they couldn't take care of, they couldn't help with taking care of the kids because my father uh, had no patience and kids yelling or talking at a normal level was too much for him. So Mm -hmm. we didn't want to expose the kids to getting yelled at all the time Mm -hmm. Um, Uh and it would be stressful and and all these other things. So, but um, like even to go to a concert, like the kids 20 minute concert, it needed to get planned out. And so I had a dear friend who was a social worker and had worked with in adoptions, but has her own kids and decided to start doing some elder care. And because she was someone we knew, my mom could trust having her come in and be with my dad. And so that Mm -hmm. really helped with starting that process of allowing Mm -hmm. somebody else to come into the apartment and help. The challenge is there's not a lot of good people like that. And it's really yeah. hard to find people um, who are going to come in and engage another adult. Like they'll come and sit and read their book at best. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The building that they live in had what I call a la carte assistance. So you can call somebody and as long as it can be timed to come in and help with medication, or if she needed to go out for three hours, they would come over. And we, my siblings and I had said, well, why don't you just always schedule somebody like every Tuesday morning, have somebody come over. And my mom was so uncomfortable with that idea. Because then she's like, well then I have to force myself to leave the apartment and what if I have nothing to do And she mm-hmm. wouldn't she also couldn't be in the apartment if somebody else was there taking care of my dad. Mm-hmm. so like even when the cleaning lady would come because that was part of their service, thankfully because my mom she is exhausted mm-hmm. um, she couldn't be in the apartment when the cleaning lady was there. she'd get my dad up and they'd leave the apartment because she she just couldn't. It was very uncomfortable for her.
1: To watch somebody else do, yeah, yeah, do work. So that was,
0: that was really hard. So that started to become Mm -hmm. concerning um, in terms of now we had not just my father's well-being, but my mom's health and safety to be concerned about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would try to get my siblings to come in. But once again, it was as though they rallied. Like my parents were different people. Like, they would arrive, and Uh they were the best that they could be. They, My dad was able to have full conversations, and my mom was full of energy. And so they would leave, and I'd say, you know, we need to start talking about how we're going to care for dad. They're like, no, mom's fine. Everything's fine. It's all good. Yeah, everyone's in such a good
1: mood. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So... (laughs) the one thing they did realize was that they'd been living in a one bedroom, one bedroom, one bathroom apartment and my mom finally realized she said she needed she needed to have a second bathroom and mm, ultimately yeah. a second room so that if somebody were to come in and help there could be space for them so she was thinking about oh. it but she wasn't she wasn't quite there yet to have somebody help. So that was difficult.
1: Yeah. Was there anything that happened that um, kind of made her accept more help or did it just get impossible or yeah. did she? So <laughs> that's
0: great, great questions. There was a little <laughs> bit of all of this. Um,
1: so my dad started,
0: the next thing that started happening was, I mean, he was moving less, um, but still had always had a great appetite. I mean, this man could always have a meal, which was great.
1: Uh-huh. Um,
0: <laughs> and he was losing more of his himself, um, mm-hmm. and then started hallucinating and would have mm. these either dreams or paranoias or and paranoias that Mm -hmm. would happen. So she was hearing these crazy stories or I would come over and hear these unbelievable tales of people who came into the apartment and the people who lived across the street and all these big fantasies. And then what would start happening was he would get up in the middle of the night and be disassociated with the time. He slept Mm -hmm. a lot. That was also another piece of it. He slept a lot and once again my mom fought everything she she never came mm-hmm. to a point of being in acceptance of his reality even when we would talk about how with dementia you need to be in their space it was oh she always was tr- holding on to if i can tell him that he's wrong he'll figure it out right if i mm-hmm. if i correct him she'd rather correct him than in her eyes lie to him which yeah. I would say is yeah. just being in his reality. But so there was tension always between the two of us as well. Um, but he was getting up in the middle of the night and getting fully dressed and going down to the lobby and wait for his ride to go to work. Um, and so that uh-huh. was happening more. And she put a lock up. she put an alarm on the door and she wasn't sleeping. I mean, she was yeah. only partially sleeping. And so... She was exhausted and we finally, she finally agreed to have somebody come overnight once a week. And that did not work out well. The person came and smelled like cigarette smoke. So she made him leave. The next time he came, he had to bring a change of clothes. There was one Mm -hmm. time where he woke up in the middle of the night and got up and the person was sleeping and slept through him getting up so my mom had to wake up and get him my dad calmed down because he was starting to wake up and be agitated really agitated so Mm -hmm. having overnight help did not work for them yeah um once again it was really difficult um they were able to find this wonderful woman who would come at least twice a week And be with my dad. And my mom did get used to going out or just being there. Or we'd say just, you know, go down to the library. There was a library in the building just to have some respite. So she was doing Mm -hmm. that and then COVID hit. And so Mm -hmm. this woman was able to come for a little bit and then that tapered off. And then we had the pandemic where they were together
1: Mm 24-7.
0: And he was declining more and more. He did not understand what was going on. I think the solitude of being locked in your room was a huge part of it. And my mom was doing more and more physical caring for him, of having to get him in and out of the shower, of bathing him um, and doing all those pieces. And once in a while, of course, through the building they would get some help, but it was never it was never going to be as good as my mom could do it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I watched her declining. So now,,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I wasn't so worried about my father. I was worried about my mom. And it was absolutely unacceptable for me to help in my mom's eyes. I was not to bathe my father, clean my father up, none of that. I could come and shave him. I could come and do his nails. But otherwise, that was not the responsibility of a daughter. I was really concerned she was going to have a heart attack and drop. He was falling more at Mm -hmm. this point. They would have to call. She would call the paramedics to be able to get him up because she couldn't lift him from the ground. She could lift him. I mean, this woman is like half the size of my father. And Uh it's a powerhouse. So at that point a suggestion had been made for um palliative care like to look into palliative care uh-huh. so once again this is we're in we're in the world of covid and i started looking at memory care places so while i was yeah. looking at memory care someone suggested actually a woman from the building one of i think the general manager of the building that they lived in suggested why not look into palliative care because then there's There were so many more resources we could have. And once we started that process, I was able to be designated as a caregiver. So I was able to come and go in the building because before Mm -hmm. that it was on total lockdown. So while it was still lockdown, I was able to come and go. So my kids, even when there was an opportunity for them to go to school, they didn't. We had a very small bubble. So that I could maintain mm-hmm. safety and be able to go and help and be there with my dad and my mom. Um, yeah. So then I went through the process of finding a memory care location, and that was <laughs> that's a whole that could be a whole chapter. Yeah. I have I kept copious notes because I never want anyone. If I can help someone go through that process um, and navigate it, I will do that in an instant. Um, I felt very alone. And it was very depressing mm-hmm. and very scary.
1: How were you kind of doing that research? You're going and visiting places?
0: Yeah, I was I was doing a lot of investigating on the computer and a lot of phone calls because I couldn't go into the facilities because oh, it was COVID. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm.
0: every time I talked to somebody, I had to tell the whole story of my father and where he was at and why he needed memory care and then you have to ask questions like if they lose their ability to feed themselves how does that work um who's with them at night how do they get from their room to somewhere else what activities are there what happens Mm -hmm. at end of life Uh, because Mm -hmm. we really I really didn't want him to have to do another move I knew that and from my research knew that every time You move, you age tremendously, and the stress involved in moving is huge. And once again, I started this research without talking to my mom. I I kept my siblings Uh in, like I would tell them, and I slowly told my mom, like, I'm doing this, you don't need to be involved right now, because she didn't want him to move. She didn't want anybody else taking care of him, but she couldn't keep doing it at the same time i talked to my brother and she would let him take care of his father right mm-hmm. male son and so i worked on getting him out of israel to get in the in the midst of covid and into america oh, goodness to be able to help and he ended up moving in with my parents and would be able to help my father in the overnight shifts so that my mom could get some yeah. sleep. And so that was that was in January. That was the big shift that allowed that to happen was my father woke up one morning and didn't know where my mom was. He had lost his ability to know who she was. And mm. up until then, so this was about four months before he passed away, up until then, he always knew who she was. He mm-hmm. always knew who I was. For the most part, he could get to everybody and knew most of our names. So there was something Mm -hmm. in there. He spent a lot of time in the past and he was very quiet, but he could remember us. And then one morning Mm -hmm. it was January 1st and he ended up having her call me. And he said, I'm so sorry. Your mom's gone. And um, from then on, it was my mom was the other Susan. Susan, and was a caregiver. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard for her. At the same time, I think it helped her with this transition. If if he hadn't, I don't think she would have let him out of the house and would have yeah. allowed somebody to yeah. take care of him. So we found a place. We found another one of these large, um, large organizations, Belmont Village. Uh, that wasn't far. Mm-hmm. Once again, it was it was really important to me. And my siblings, my brother, had a lot of very strong feelings about where my parents first when they lit, moved here to independent living and the type of community. My big piece was it needs to be close by because um, I watched a lot of my friends traveling 40 minutes to go see family.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then it's your day. You travel 40 minutes there, you're going to spend 40 minutes. It's three hours, five hours. And so having them close by meant that I could come in and pop in on short notice. Or when I stayed, Mm -hmm. it was more time with them. So we found there was a place that wasn't far from my mom's at all. It was about three minutes. So it was kind of halfway between both of us. And um, we were able to move him in there.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Were you able to get in there very much in COVID to to visit him? We did. So
0: we were able to get in and see the space. Um, I learned a lot from that process too, that you deal with salespeople and you don't deal with Mm -hmm. the reality of who's actually there every day. So there's disconnect between what they're selling you and what actually life is like for the um for the client, for the patient. We actually back up and before so we had started palliative care which was great and they were coming in on a weekly basis and it was actually the palliative care was i think the biggest help was for us for my mom and i in Mm -hmm. terms of education it was great that they were checking on my dad but the biggest part was the support and then i don't know if it was the palliative care nurse I'm um, honestly, I know I have it in my notes, but we switched to hospice care. Mm-hmm. He was really not moving, um, and he was sleeping a lot. And because before he moved, or as it was like as he was moving, it was he switched from palliative care to hospice. That opened up our ability to see him on a regular basis. Because it's a different, Mm -hmm. my kids could actually, because of that, my kids were able to go into the building where my parents lived and see him. So that had been their Mm -hmm. first time seeing him. And besides, they would drive by, but it was their first time hugging their grandfather, which was their last before he moved. And then by him being in hospice, we got a lot of his room taken care of. So a hospital bed was delivered through hospice and a wheelchair was delivered through hospice. We also had him moved by ambulance from one Mm -hmm. location to the other, which was, I, I, it was very uncomfortable, but it was the best way of making that transition for him. It would have been very difficult getting him in and out of a car. And so when he moved, we could visit him. Once again, he was on hospice. So we were there every day either my my mom would go once a week and my brother and I were there every day alternating. We were the only ones on the floor that my father was on that had visitors. It was really sad and lonely Mm -hmm. and we were also watching out for him because they don't have enough staff. The nurse that worked there was in charge of four floors and because he was in hospice, he had a nurse practitioner who came every day and helped him get dressed every morning. And if he hadn't had that, wow. if he wasn't on, wasn't a hospice patient, he would not have had that. And so he would yeah. have had to wait until one of the assistants—they call them pals—would have helped him, or we would have had mm-hmm. to pay to have a one-on-one for him.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Was your family in agreement about the timing of hospice?
0: I have to, through everything, my family was very, we were all on the same page. And Mm -hmm. I am the health proxy for both my parents. And when we made the decision to move my dad, um, actually, once my father stopped knowing Mm -hmm. who my mom was, my mom relinquished decisions to me. So she was still very active role, but I really stepped up and took the lead on all of his care because it was too much for her.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if it almost was like a gift to her in a way for him mm -hmm. to view her as the other Susan, that that was her only role now of just being the the caregiver Susan. Um, And so she was able to kind of just step into that role because it's the one that he he gave her instead of trying to also maintain the, the wife role. It
0: was, it was a very painful gift. Um, Yeah. So, and it was a painful gift that my mom gave to me to let me do that and, and be the one that made these decisions. And we were, but we were all in, we were all in agreement and we had a, a family chat going and kept everyone up to speed and everyone was on was on the same page when it came to hospice and end of life we were all um it was all about his comfort um he rallied you know they they talk about a patient rallying the week before or you know time before Mm -hmm. and we truly believe that the month that he was at brookdale was his rally month I mean, he was more active. Mm -hmm. Yes, they were getting him up and moving him and he was doing activities as much as, I mean, he was still very indignant and didn't want to do things. But Mm -hmm. um, he would have great conversations with, we found out that he knew everybody who worked there and would have great conversations with him. And everyone knew his great smile and all these wonderful things at the end. And so he had a really great month. What he said was at summer camp. He thought he was, uh huh, at camp or at sleep like uh, boarding school.
1: Yeah, so. kind of exactly. accurate. <laughs> exactly. He'd asked to go
0: home. And said he couldn't go home.
1: But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. So. And then um, was your whole family able to be there, um, or I mean, including your siblings and everyone, kind of at the same time in those last.
0: The last few days, so what happened was my sister, who hadn't seen him in two years, um, Mm -hmm. finally came to town. And I I was begging her at that point. I mean, there were many times in the previous two years where even before COVID that I kept saying, you need to come. You need to come and see dad. You need to spend time with him. Oh, he's fine. He's fine. So she did come and she was coming to stay the month. So she could come and see him and back and forth and help with my mom. And it was a Sunday and it was beautiful. We took him outside, my sister and I, we had a nice visit. And then that next morning he, he was, he was alive, but he was unresponsive. And um, Mm -hmm. so that was her last time seeing him. Um, It was too much for her to come and be with him. Um, So she spent, it was a gift for me. She was with my kids. And help take care of with Dan. And uh, and mm, so my mom, yeah. my brother, my niece Ari and I were able to be with my dad for his last four days. So,
1: yeah. So then I think the other, another piece that people don't talk about is right after passing mm-hmm. away, the planning. Mm-hmm. Um, did you feel like that was, you'd had a hospice and palliative care. So did you feel... That you kind of got the support in those stages to have a yeah. plan, know what was coming, kind of not not feel mm-hmm. too blindsided. So, um, absolutely,
0: the thing, the gift that my parents, both of them, actually gave their kids was planning everything ahead of time. So they had yeah. a a senior planning advisor that they had met with who did all uh-huh. of their money type things and accounts and trusts and all of those pieces a couple of years prior. And that's actually when I think we signed over. My mom was then the executor of everything um, and was able to sign off for my dad. Um, and they also, my mom had already paid for the funeral and they had their plots mm-hmm. and all of those things were taken care of. So when, so Hospice did talk with us about it and prepared us. And they, we call her Hospice Susan lovingly. Her name was Susan. And because my mom's uh-huh. name is Susan, it was the other Susan. Oh, yeah. But hospice Susan <laughs> uh, was with us from the day my dad moved into Brookdale and was with us all the way through. And I actually am still in touch with her. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think we talk about hospice enough and yeah. palliative care was something totally new to me but it was the greatest gift the the people who who work in hospice are they're angels they are the kindest people who are real i mean there was there was some tough love there was straight talking um making sure that we knew what was going on they were advocates for us um, at really difficult times. And then, so the process is hospit had been with us. He passed, we called the nurse from the location. They called hospice. They sent a nurse over who stayed with us. Then a social worker came over and had the social worker had been with us a couple of days before. And so we were with a hospice nurse and a social worker until they came the funeral parlor came to take my dad. Um, mm-hmm. So we weren't alone and it wasn't scary and everything was in place. And then in the Jewish tradition, people get buried as soon as possible. Um, it's usually a day or two. Um, my mom being the person she is, his funeral was multiple, like hours later. He passed away at one 30 in the morning and he was buried at one 30 in the afternoon, um, which wow. was really difficult for me. Um, but once again, you, it's so easy, I think, for people to be upset and to have, for these times to be really challenging and the arguments to happen between family, but it's not about,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: it's about the family and not the individual. And so Mm -hmm. there's a lot of your own, there were a lot of my own personal Feelings that it wasn't the time and you're hurting and everyone's hurting in their own ways and you have to, it's hard. It's hard, but I'm glad we, we talked about all of those things beforehand,
1: you know, and Mm -hmm. I know,
0: you know, (laughs) we're related. So we have similar families and, and having these conversations, (laughs) it's important, Um, but it truly was a gift that my mom and dad had taken care of all of their funeral um, related expenses and decisions ahead of time. So then it wasn't, we yeah. didn't have to go through the process of picking out a coffin. And there's such a financial cost to all of those pieces that at a time when you're, there's nothing left to you to have to make those decisions mm-hmm. is really difficult. So, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, how is your mom doing now? She's She's good.
0: The first year was hard, and people say that, and it's true. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's doing well. She misses him, which is actually a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. She has moved on from feeling guilty. There's moments where she feels like she could have done more, and we have a lot of conversations Mm -hmm. about the gift that she gave him. Um, Mm -hmm. But she still lives where she lives. She lives in Brookdale um, independent living. Um, and she will live there as long as she can. And she's still driving and takes care of herself and knows that she needs to keep moving and exercising and doing all the things that my father was reluctant to do. Um, Mm -hmm. and she's, she's actually enjoying being on her own. She's never, she never Uh lived on her own. She never traveled on her own. Really. And so she's now we're in year two and she's starting to enjoy those things and appreciating um, the life that she has still to live.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Anything else? Anything that you learned or that surprised you that would be beneficial to others or just, you know, just something that kind of jumps out? Well,
0: I think the fact that you're doing this is huge. Um, and so many of us are going through it and we don't talk about it enough. Um, Mm -hmm. the sandwich generation is a real thing. And I think that there's a Mm -hmm. lot that we could lean on each other. Um, that was something I don't think I really got into, but was really difficult was trying to be a mom and a daughter and a spouse at the same time. Um, I really had to put my kid, my family on hold, which I wish I could have done differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the relationship between siblings is really important. Mm-hmm. And there was never resentment. Um, there was frustration, which is okay and honest and real, and it needs to be talked about. Um, I think what was mm-hmm. really important was that we we learned really early on what our roles were. My sister was the doer. She could go and do things. And I was the emotional support. And the doer, like, kind of fit this middle piece. And my brother was the emotional support. So, like, when my mom needed an ear to to talk to, it was my brother. And when she needed something physically to be done that was just that, it was my sister. And being able to help share that burden. And it is. Like, I think that's the big thing is that calling it for what it is right this is hard Mm -hmm. and it's uncomfortable and it doesn't feel good um but why you know realizing why the other piece of advice or that i was given um was that the emotions are like waves and they come Mm -hmm. at you and you don't ever know if it's going to be a huge like knockout wave or a small one And, um, Mm -hmm. I was told that after my father passed away and it's so true, but I think it's true through the entire process, um, that, and also realizing what your roles are. And I, I allowed myself to mourn my father, uh, before he passed Mm -hmm. away and Mm -hmm. I thought it would make it easier once he passed away and I kind of felt guilty, but it didn't at all. I was able to mourn him mm-hmm. in a different way, but i i was al- i allowed myself to let go of what I knew and what I felt like mm-hmm. he should be and Now, when I think about him, i always i took around i I think of him as he was in the eighties, so I miss uh-huh. my nineteen eighties dad, and I have fond memories of what he was towards the end and all the way along, but when I think about him fondly, I think of 1980s dad.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. yeah. So. And I like um, what you said about the roles. I think that can be such a challenging piece when you don't know what your role is. And the other thing I thought was jumped out at me that I thought was really wise was, as you were saying, before you kind of would go into the room that you would figure out which hat mm-hmm. you're putting on is this the daughter hat or is this the caregiver yeah. hat it's hard to wear both at once so being able to just kind of say "I'm just getting something done today or um i'm not going to worry about it and i'm just gonna come over for a coffee you know or whatever but, all right well thank Thanks. you jen we'll have to talk again soon all right sounds good don't be a stranger okay sounds good all right. take all right. care Bye. Thanks again, Jen, for sharing your story. I hope you enjoyed this. And if you did, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast. If you would like to share your story, you can find me on my website at ageoldquestions.org. You can also find me on Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you'll consider sharing it with someone else who might also enjoy listening to this. And until next time, be well.